You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. This morning, we're going to be looking at Revelation 5. And if you are turned there, you can read along with me. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. So Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for this Word. And we come to it this morning, Lord, eager to hear Your voice. We ask that You speak to our hearts. Use it to bring comfort, peace, and conviction that we might be transformed evermore into the likeness of Your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the very Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb who was slain. Amen. So, the book of Revelation. So as I was preparing my sermon, I was reminded very quickly that this is a book that generates a lot of interest. And um, given its content, you know, it's, it's really no surprise why this is the case. I mean, for many people, the book of Revelation is just, it's mysterious. And frankly, it can be difficult to understand. 
For others, it might bring to mind particular novels they've read or movies they saw. Um, I can think of one in particular seeing as a kid that was about Revelation. So in short, when it comes to Revelation, there has been a lot of ink spilled regarding these 22 chapters uh, in the book. And opinions resound and abound regarding their meaning. Now, with that in mind, how then should we approach this particular book of the Bible? How should we go about trying to understand its message? And let's start by turning to the first chapter. And look with me at the first chapter at the first two verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants the things that must soon take place, He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. So right here at the very beginning of Revelation, we learn a couple things. First, we learn that the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which identifies Him as both the author of Revelation and also as the subject of Revelation. Okay? We also learn that this book is intended for somebody. Who's it intended for? His servants. Or you might say believers. And it's made known to us through one of his other servants, in particular, the Apostle John. And finally, it's intended to show us things that must soon take place. So we need not wonder what the book is about. This is what the book is about. And if you get, didn't get all of that as I was going through it, let me summarize it quickly by saying, Revelation is a book by and about Jesus Christ, written through the Apostle John for believers. Pretty simple. Now, if you've spent any time at all reading the book of Revelation, you know that it includes a lot of very interesting language. There's dragons and thrones and creatures. And concerning this, we need to understand that Revelation is what's called apocalyptic literature. It is a specific genre of literature. So for instance, if you are reading poetry, you don't expect it to read like history, do you? Or if you're reading history, you don't expect that to read like poetry. So when we come to the book of Revelation, we need to understand that it is apocalyptic and prophetic in nature. And this is actually revealed to us in chapter 1 again. So if you look at the first verse, do you see that word revelation? The revelation of Jesus Christ? This word is a translation of the Greek word apocalypsis, which just means revelation, disclosure, or unveiling. So in other words, this could also read as the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. But then, if you look later in verse 3, and then all throughout the rest of the book, you're going to see that it is also a book of prophecy. So we have to keep those two things in mind. Now, why is this important? It's important because it gives us clues on how to understand and interpret what we're about to read in the rest of the book. This is framing what comes after it. So understand that apocalyptic and prophetic writings are imparted in very symbolic visions. They're meant to be seen. And we're going to see this, as you know, in Old Testament writings like Ezekiel, where he saw the wheel within a wheel. Or Daniel, 
where he saw the, the giant image with clay feet and the iron and the bronze. We also see it in Zechariah. So this means then that it's our job as we read Revelation to do our best to understand what these symbols represent. All the while remembering that the images described in Revelation, they're conveying these mysterious and unseen realities. They're mysterious. We're getting glimpses. So for instance, as you read Revelation, you're going to notice, this is an example, it uses the word seven all the time. Um, and when it does this, sometimes it means seven. <laughs> like at the beginning, it's going to be addressed to seven churches. And guess what? There are seven churches. But sometimes when you see the word seven, it's re representing something about completion and perfection. So for instance, it's going to refer, refer to the Holy Spirit throughout the book as the seven spirits of God. Now, does this mean there are seven Holy Spirits? No. It's a way to describe the Holy Spirit's completion and perfection. Remember, this is apocalyptic prophetic writing. It's a different genre of writing. So with all of that in mind, as our preface, let's turn again to Revelation 5. And what I want to do this morning is actually break this text into four different scenes to help us navigate the vision. And the scenes we're going to be looking at are the throne, the scroll, the lamb, and finally, the exaltation. So scene one, the throne. Now to understand John's vision in chapter five, we first need to understand this is actually a continuation of what began in chapter four. In fact, chapters four and five really ought to be viewed as two parts of the same vision, okay? And if you look back at chapter four, you're gonna see right at chapter four, verse one, John is transported through a door into the very throne room of God. And for context, we're going to look at this chapter here, chapter 4, so we can better understand what's happening in chapter 5. So in chapter 4, we read, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on those thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And four living creatures, the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, 
and full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. We just sang that, didn't we? Literally joining in the praises of heaven around the very throne. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. It's quite a scene, isn't it? Imagine being John here, trying to take this all in and then bring it to us in this revelation. John's vision of the throne is one of incredible majesty. It's awesome power. It's unparalleled glory. And it's a reminder, if nothing else, it's a reminder that history is not haphazardly moving aimlessly from one year to the next. From one event to the next. From one president to the next. No, you see, there's a throne. And on this throne is the very creator of the universe. This throne, it's not vacant. It's occupied. And from this throne, He, God Almighty, is presiding over history. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He has not left His universe to run unsupervised or uncontrolled. And in light of this, thus, what do they proclaim? Worthy are You, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. This is the scene of Revelation 4 and 5. This is the context as now we go into chapter 5. So scene 2, the scroll. Scene 1 is this idea of the throne. John's, John's captivated by the throne. Now we look at the scroll. So the second part of John's vision in chapter 5 continues with the vision of a throne, but there's a shift in emphasis from the one who's on the throne now to a question of his purposes. It's a question of his purposes. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And then one of the elders came to John, didn't he? He said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So here at the beginning of chapter 5, John's vision shifts from the throne to an object in God's right hand. You see that? Namely, a scroll. And in ancient times, you guys probably know this, scrolls were perhaps the most common method for preserving the written word. Uh, Think of them kind of like a modern book. Um, Scrolls were typically made either from small pieces of papyrus or of parchment, and they were glued together to form a long sheet. 
that could then be rolled up and stored. It was also common in those days to protect important documents by melting a small portion of wax and then using a seal that might be on a ring, like a signet ring, to authenticate that document as coming from a specific person and then to seal it from being opened by the wrong person. This was often true of uh, Roman contracts and um, uh, estates, wills. They would seal them. For instance, D.A. Carson said the Emperor Vespasian sealed his um, will and testament with seven seals. This was common in that time. But what is it exactly that's so important, important about this particular scroll? I mean, what's the deal with this particular scroll? What about it can be interesting enough to actually draw John's attention away from the very throne of God? And as we're going to see in Revelation 6, and then throughout the rest of the book, we're, we're not going to have time to do this today, but this scroll is nothing less than God's predetermined plan for the end of the age. It contains God's program and judgments for the earth that will bring all of human history to its appointed end. In other words, this is literally the book of human destiny. And it's sealed and resides in God's right hand. So for instance, in chapter 6, when the first seal is broken, the first horse is summoned to bring judgment. And then with each seal that is broken, judgment comes. And notice what John tells us about this scroll. He notes that it contains something interesting. It contains writing that's what? On both the inside and the outside. Now, that's important because such a thing was uncommon in those days due to just simply how scrolls were made. In how scrolls were made, there was always one side that had a vertical grain. And it was hard to write across that vertical grain. And so it was uncommon for scrolls to be written on both sides. And so this is John's way of saying that there is no part of this scroll that's incomplete. In other words, there's absolutely nothing missing from this scroll. And the point here is that there's no hole then in God's plan. This is the scroll of human destiny. There's no hole in it. It's perfect. It's complete. And John also tells us that the scroll is sealed, doesn't he? And it's not just sealed, it's sealed in perfect sense with seven seals, which resembles that number of completion in Revelation. So in other words, this scroll of human destiny and plan of God for human history is a closed book. History is not up for grabs. It's already been written and is eternally fixed by the sovereign hand of God. And this, of course, is good news because it means that as history unfolds, with all of its complexity and mystery sometimes, it will only do so according to God's recorded record. History has been sealed. It's been closed. And then in verse 2, we get this challenge we see that there's a strong angel with a voice that reaches all of creation and he puts forward a challenge. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who has the innate worth and holiness to approach the throne of God Almighty 
take the scroll from his mighty hand, open the seals, and begin to execute his plan of redemption on earth and defeat Satan. Who will be God's agent and executor? Is anyone worthy? And verse 3 tells us what? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look into it. And how does John respond? He weeps. John is brought to his knees. Not with disappointment, but we get the sense of utter sorrow and despair. We're told he weeps loudly. You almost get the sense that this is a moment of panic for John. I mean, this is human destiny. This is what's going to make everything right, and there's nobody who can open it. Remember, John is writing this book from the island of Patmos, where he's been exiled by the Roman Empire. He's writing during a time where Christianity seems to be hanging on by a thread. By all outward appearances, it seems like the church might be a passing fad. Her leaders are being killed. Her members are being martyred. Her message is opposed by the greatest empire on earth. Her resources are few, and her followers are poor. John must be thinking, is this it, Lord? Is this the end for your church? And truly, it's the same question that suffering Christians of every generation ask when confronted with the mystery of God's purpose in their own lives. It's that question of, what exactly is God doing in this situation? And so, being confronted with this vision, whereby nobody is found worthy to execute God's plan, it had to be a tremendous blow to John and his hope. But then comes verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has what? Conquered. So that he can open the scroll and his seven seals. John, John, going to be okay. Stop weeping. Your fears, they're misplaced. Your hopelessness is unfounded. There is one who is worthy. Remember, John, the lion Jacob prophesied would come from the line of his son Judah, the one whom shall be the obedience of the peoples. John, remember the branch Isaiah prophesied would come from the root of Jesse and restore David's dynasty. Guess what? Not only was he David's descendant, he was also the source of David's rule. He is David's root. The bright morning star, the offspring promised to Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis. He is the Christ. and He's worthy. He's conquered and can open the scroll with its seals. Scene 3 the Lamb. In verse 6, we see, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a Lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Now, having just been comforted by one of the 24 elders, John's attention now is going to return again to the throne. But now it does so with hope. 
Now it's not in despair. And imagine his surprise when looking for the mighty conquering lion, this knight in shining armor, this strong warrior, what does he see? A lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. So here at the center of the throne, John beholds his risen, ascended Savior. And this Savior is still bearing the scars from His passion on the cross as those slain. The one whom Isaiah prophesied was oppressed and afflicted. This is the one who was led like a lamb to the slaughter, yet opened not His mouth. The one who's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The one who John, just a few years earlier, actually wrote, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lion and king has indeed conquered. But how? He's worthy, but why? Look at verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So, Back in Genesis, God made a promise that He was going to make right the wrong brought forth by Adam and Eve, sinful rebellion. He was going to send an offspring that would crush the serpent's head. We've been talking about this in our study of Genesis. And then in the fullness of time, that offspring burst into history when Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, did what? He took on flesh. And then He perfectly fulfilled the requirements of God's law and then offered Himself as that ransom for our sin. Now He offers us His righteousness by grace through faith. Therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, so that what? Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He's already won the victory. He's already qualified Himself. We don't need to find a champion who will do. He's already done. And He is able to take the scroll and break the seals because of His life, death, and resurrection. And notice though that this Lamb is not weak and defenseless. Here's where we get into some of that symbolic imagery. No, He's described as having what? Seven horns which symbolize unlimited power. Horns like a ram or an ox would have. And seven eyes, which which symbolize His unlimited wisdom. In other words, this lamb, like the one on the throne, is omnipotent and able to crush His enemies and omniscient in that He knows everything that has happened and will come to pass. He is worthy. And now in verse 7, John beholds what many commentators call the most dramatic event in redemptive history. Imagine John seeing this scene, standing before the throne of God, encircled by the four living creatures and these elders. Verse 7 tells us, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Can you imagine the tension and the anticipation John must have experienced beholding this vision? 
These angels are there to protect and guard God's holiness. Nobody approaches the throne of God. And just what happened in this scene. Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain, who's qualified Himself, He approaches the awesome throne of God with all of its lightning, with all of its thunder, and surrounded by the hosts of heaven watching in anticipation, He takes the book directly from the hand of God, making Him the executor and administrator of God's plan for history on earth. It's really incredible. It's really, really incredible. And so this takes us to that last scene, the exaltation. So what happens? The Lamb who was slain goes to the throne. He takes the scroll and all of heaven erupts in worship. Immediately, the four living creatures and the elders, these creatures dedicated to the worship of God Almighty, they begin singing a new song to the Son, to the Lamb. And notice what is included. We're told they have golden bowls full of incense, which are what? The prayers of the saints. And this is just a beautiful confirmation that humanity's prayers throughout the ages, your and my prayer for relief and justice, they will be heard. They've been heard and they will be answered in God's providential time. And then they sang a new song saying what? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And in this new song, we're reminded that God's purpose and redemption since the garden has been to make a people for Himself. A people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. It's a beautiful mosaic of humanity. And this people will what? They're going to reign over the earth, which is another reminder that there's a new creation coming. This purpose for God is going to include this new creation, and it's going to be a creation free from sin and Satan's tyranny. He's also made us into a kingdom and priests to our God. And I think this is a really interesting little phrase, priests to our God. If you attended the lectures on the ascension, you may recall God's promise to Israel in Exodus 19. You don't? That's okay. I'm going to remind you. But in Exodus 19, there at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with His people through Moses, the covenant mediator. And He says to Moses and to Israel, if, that's important, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all the peoples. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So if you keep my covenant and obey my commands. Now, what happened with Israel? They failed, didn't they? And they received the covenant curses for their failures to obey God and His covenant. But look back at what happens in verse 10. Where Israel failed, Jesus Christ because it says you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Jesus is worthy. 
And we're told then the heavenly worship expands as John hears the voice of many angels and they number myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands. It's innumerable. And they say with a loud voice, worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive this sevenfold tribute of power. There's that number. It's, it's, he's to receive ultimate power and glory. A tribute of power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. And finally, in an amazing display of this power, we're told that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, even His enemies, proclaims to Him who sits on, his, on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so, the worship that ended in chapter 4 that was given to God on the throne now includes the Lamb because He's worthy. And so, this morning in conclusion, I just want to encourage you as I encourage myself to allow these words and the truths of Revelation 5 to speak to your heart. Um, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of anxieties about the future, in the midst of all of life's burdens and struggles, look to the Lamb. The Lamb who has reconciled us to God the Father. And remember, the One who holds the scroll of human destiny and will execute God's plan of judgment and bring history to an end is also the Lamb who was slain for our redemption. If He's worthy to take the scroll and to break the seals, He's certainly worthy of our love, our devotion, and our trust. And I leave you with a quote from Pastor Eric Alexander who writes, quote, Life and all its enigmas takes on meaning and begins to reveal its purpose only when Jesus Christ and all His glory is in the supreme place. There are two places where Christ is to be exalted to a solitary glory. One is in heaven. The other is in the lives of His believers. So, is He worthy? He is. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for this beautiful truth brought to us in Your Word from Revelation chapter 5. Lord, we ask that You would use in it to strengthen our faith in You. Sanctify us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.